Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. If you have been around long enough, you will figure out that I love sports. Uh, I am a sports fan. That should not be a surprise to anyone who knows me well. I grew up playing sports. I love sports. My second favorite sport behind baseball is basketball. I always grew up, I'm tall, so I was just, I was destined to play basketball. I was, from birth, they said, here's a ball, you're long go play. And so I love basketball. Uh, And so one of my favorite things about basketball is basketball coaches. Basketball coaches are legendary. Um, They they transcend the game. You know, Mike Krzyzewski and Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, you know, even Steve Kerr starting to get into into that. But I think college coaches are, are even more transcendent. So one of the greatest college coaches of all time was John Wooden. And if you ever hear somebody talk about John Wooden, he coached for UCLA in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They they don't ever talk about how good of a basketball coach he was. They talk about how good of a man he was. And these people who played for him would say that he didn't just teach us how to dribble the ball. He taught us how to be men. He taught us how to live lives and be good husbands and good fathers. And But one thing that John Wooden would do every single year is he would make the players take the shoelaces off their shoes and then reteach them how to lace their shoes correctly. So can you imagine being an 18 to 22-year-old person and being told how to tie your shoes? He wanted them to get back to the very basics of what it looked like to be successful. And he said, if you don't tie your shoes right, you're not going to play the game right. When it comes to Christianity, it's very much the same. If we don't get the basics right, we're going to get everything else wrong. We have to get the very basics of Christianity right, or we're going to get everything else wrong. And that's why we're going through this series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And if you lose any of the elements of what we see in the Apostles' Creed, you begin to lose Christianity itself. It becomes something else. And so we've looked at the idea of God as a trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we begun to unpack the idea of God as Father and what that means, that he is a creator, um, that he's all-powerful over all things. Last week, uh, the church planner that we support, Antoine Brewster, began to unpack the idea of Jesus as the Son. And in a couple weeks, we're going to get to the Holy Spirit, but we're actually going to do five sermons specifically on Jesus five sermons. This is the second out of five on Jesus, the person and work of Christ that's described in the Apostles' Creed. And the reason is, is that we have a Christ-centered faith. What I mean by that is it's not that we don't worship the Father. It's not that we don't worship the Spirit, but we do so through Jesus. Jesus is the crux of Christianity. He is the hinge on which the door turns, and he is the one who gives us access to God the Father. It is through what Jesus did for us on the cross that we're brought back into right relationship with God. It's because of what Jesus has done that we now have access to God. And even the way that the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit has been described often as the shy member of the Trinity, the shy member, because the Holy Spirit is always pointing away from himself towards Christ. And so we're going to spend all this time on Jesus because Jesus is how we see God. We see and know God through knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus, in fact, said, if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. But in John chapter 1, which talks about Jesus coming into the world, in verse 18, it says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, so we're talking about Jesus, God the Son, he has made him known. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. 
And so today we're gonna look at how Jesus came into the world. And so the next phrase in the Apostles' Creed is, who was, so Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so we're gonna be, what we're describing here is the incarnation. What I mean by incarnation is that God became a man. God stepped into our world as a human being and did so, he stepped right into the middle of our mess. He stepped right in and got his hands dirty in the middle of our lives. Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Most everybody has seen that. And so you get this boss and he goes in, he goes into his workplace and, and he's kind of clueless, right? He doesn't know anything that's going on. And he goes in like a regular employee named like Matt or Joe. And he's got a really terrible fake mustache and everybody knows it's the boss, but they're playing along because this is TV. And, and they're watching this, this thing's unfolding and he, his eyes begin to get open to the working conditions of his employees. And, and he meets that single mom who's working and she's working a second job and she's trying to put food on the table for her kids. And there's this great happy ending at the end where he gives her a promotion and now she only has to work one job and can spend time with her kids. And so this boss enters into it not knowing what's going on. That's not the way that Jesus enters into our world. Jesus enters in knowing everything's wrong. He enters in knowing all of our mess and all of our sin and every bit of injustice in our city. He sees the poverty, he sees the brokenness and came to us anyway. Let's let that sink in for a minute. God came to us. God came to us. And we're gonna unpack this idea of what the incarnation means, what it means that Jesus was born of a virgin, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit by answering two questions this morning. First of all, what does the incarnation mean? And then secondly, what does the incarnation tell us? So what does the incarnation mean? What does the incarnation tell us? So let's look firstly at the question, what does the incarnation mean? Well, as we said, this means that God became a man. In our text this morning, Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, we see this idea, it says, in the sixth month. This is an incredible story of how Jesus is born. And it says, in the sixth month, well, the question is, in the sixth month of what? We gotta back up on the story a little bit. If you look at the preceding verses, we see the story of Elizabeth, who's going to give birth to John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin. Now this is significant because it's the sixth month of her being pregnant. And it matters because if you look at the text, it says that she was advanced in years. What this means is that she was beyond the age of having children. Some people believe she may have been into her 60s, possibly even 70s. Her husband was so dumbfounded by this that, that the spirit struck him with the inability to speak until the baby was born. This was shocking, but Mary doesn't know this yet. And we're gonna come back to why that's important in a minute. And so in the midst of this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel comes and he's sent from God uh, to the city. And this is key because we need to understand there's something divine happening here. Something holy is happening here. And they go to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Now, calling Nazareth a city is a little generous. It's a tiny little podunk town. So, so wherever you're from, imagine, you know, when, when you try to describe to someone who doesn't live there where you're from, where you're from, you pick the, the nearest big city, right? You pick, so you say, hey, I'm from Boston because nobody knows where like Walpole is or where Hingham, I'm not calling those places podunk, just if you're from there, I'm sorry. Um, but nobody knows where that place is. See, the, the story is happening in this tiny little town to tiny little unsuspecting people. Now, before we dive into the details of, of a virgin giving birth, we want to zoom out just a little bit because it's easy to get lost in the, in the details of all of this and miss the fact of what's going on. So does anybody remember the pictures? It, it looks like a random assortment of shapes, but as you begin to back up from it, you start to see a 3D image. 
Is anybody else like me who never saw the 3D image? Okay, that, that, what we need to do is we need to zoom out just a little bit so we can see the image of what's happening here. Because we can miss the fact, in all the details we see here, we can miss the fact that God became man. In John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word, word means the truth, the very purpose of why we exist, that God himself became flesh. And we know this from John 1, 1, where it says that the word was in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was God. So we see God, the son, with God the Father in the beginning. And in verse 14, it says, this God came and dwelt among us, literally meaning to tabernacle among us. Imagine someone pitching their tent. They, they, they move all the way in. So Jesus, in doing so, in coming into our world, comes all the way in. He doesn't commute in. He moves into the neighborhood. He is right here in the middle of this mess with us. Some old heresy said that God, as a, Jesus as a fully grown man, beamed down from heaven like Star Trek, beamed down onto earth. No, Jesus was born into our world. And here it says in verse 27 that he was born to a virgin, to the virgin Mary. And this means she had never been with a man in any sense but she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal is a little bit different than, than being engaged. It's kind of somewhere between being engaged and being married. They're legally married, but they have not yet consummated the marriage. They have their wedding hashtag. They've got all that stuff ready, but every, not everything has been consummated yet. For them to separate, they would legally have to divorce. And in verses 29 and 30, the angel comes to her and says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And at this, she was greatly troubled as she hears this, but that phrasing, greetings, O favored one, that's actually where Catholics get the phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. But what we see from the text is that Mary is not the giver of grace, she's the recipient of grace. And, and, this, and this angel meets her in that moment and reminds her of God's grace because she's hearing this news that is earth shattering, that is life altering, that's gonna affect her reputation and affect her life forever. The angel says to her, you are going to conceive a son. You don't have to be afraid, but you're going to conceive this son. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And so Mary is astounded by this. And I, and I don't think it's the way that John the Baptist's father was astounded because she's not struck with the inability to speak. I think she's just trying to wrap her head around what's happening in this moment. And in verse 35, the spirit tells her how this is gonna happen. And, and the, it, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then the very next phrase really gives some detail of what that looks like. He says, the most high will overshadow you. What, what does he mean by that? It means that the presence and grace of God are gonna be with Mary in the most difficult situation. In something that looks disreputable to the world, but is gonna give glory and honor to God. That she was gonna bring God himself into the world. And in fact, the, that phrasing is the exact picture in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel was wandering around the wilderness looking for the promised land. And there was this cloud that was over the people reminding them of the presence and the power of God being with them. God's powerful presence rested on Mary. And so when God calls us to something difficult, when he calls us to something 
that's hard, something that stretches us, something that might mess up the tidiness of our lives, he's with us. Now, for some of you, if you're hearing this about about a virgin birth and God coming into the world, you might go, this seems a little far-fetched. Like this actually may be the stumbling block for you about believing Christianity. Because if you're scientifically minded, you're like, you know, I know how this thing works. Virgins don't give birth, right? In fact, there have been objections for a very long time to the idea of the virgin birth. And kind of one famous internet objection is this idea that Christians have just copied this story from a bunch of old myths, a bunch of old pagan myths. There's this idea out there, and I call these internet objections because they're the things you Google, but they've got about as much credibility as a HuffPost article. Like they're not exactly, they're not exactly the most, we can go the other end too, I'm not picking on them, but there's just not a lot behind them, not a lot of scholarship. And so it usually goes like this, that there's some sort of Egyptian God, and it's always the Egyptian gods, I don't know why, um, someone like Mithras, and they say, well, Mithras was born of a virgin. Well, in fact, if you look a little deeper, Mithras was actually born from a rock. Um, you go into some other ones about Horus and Osiris and Dionysus, all these other foreign gods that supposedly Christianity borrowed from, but they didn't. In fact, there's a guy named Dr. Vince Bantu who does some incredible work on this idea of, uh, of these different myths and how they don't line up with Christianity. Some have even, even said, you know, is, is this story even really necessary to the Christian faith? Like, do we need this? There was an, a pastor and author named Rob Bell who wrote this book called Velvet Elvis. Don't suggest it. It's a terrible book. Um, but he, in this book, he says, what would happen if we just removed this from the story? Do we really need it? And simply the answer is yes. This is a tier one essential core doctrine of the Christian faith. We, we cannot just remove this because it's hard. And the reason is, is that Jesus needed to live a sinless life without a sinful nature. Because we see that the very curse comes through being born of man. If if Joseph had been the father, Jesus would have been born with a sinful nature. God had to be his father. He had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Because we didn't just need a better man. We didn't just need a better example, a better person that we could look up to and all live up to. We needed someone who could come and live the life none of us could possibly live. And the other reason is, is the Bible clearly says it. We gotta be careful. We can't just pick and choose what we like. Uh, In the New York Times, there was an article by a man named Nicholas Kristoff And he asked a famous pastor, Tim Keller, about this idea. He says, look, he said, I like Christianity. I like the morals. I like the focus on justice. I like the the fact that Jesus cares for the least of these. But man, some of these stories about like the virgin birth, like why don't we just do away with them? And and, and Pastor Keller said, "A a religion can't be whatever we desire it to be. We can't just make it what we want it. It'd be like, for example, if I went to a Mexican restaurant and said, I would like to order a taco, but Instead of, a, instead of a, a tortilla, I would like you to put it on a bun. Instead of ground beef, I would like it as a patty. And instead of shredded cheese, I would like it as a slice of cheese. I, I no longer have a taco, I have a hamburger. And that's what oftentimes we do to Christianity when we pick and choose and change things. We morph it into something that it's not even supposed to be. The Christian faith does not, call, does not submit itself to us, but we submit ourselves to Jesus It's a call to come and deny ourselves and to come with all of our doubts and come with all of our struggles and come with all of our, all the mental things. Like, look, as my wife often says, she says, the more I'm a Christian, the more questions I have. And Jesus invites those questions. And the thing about Jesus is that he said a lot of really outrageous things. He claimed to be God. 
we can't just label Jesus as a moral teacher because that's not who he said he was. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's either lying about all this stuff, he is, he's a tinfoil hat conspiracy person, or he is actually who he says he is. But we can even just go back to the premise of this. If there is a God who's in control of all things, then he can certainly cause a virgin to have birth. Robert Stein says that if one is open to the possibility of God entering into history and being able to transcend the laws of nature, it is not difficult to believe that the God who raised his son from the dead and empowered him to do many mighty miracles could have sent him into the world by the miracle of the virgin birth. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful and in control of all things, he can do whatever he wants. And in fact, we see a bit of this miracle when it talks about Elizabeth, this woman who was past birthing age. God created a miracle and opened her womb to have a child. And it compares this in the same way to Jesus coming into the world. But we also see these two complementary ideas in the Apostles' Creed of being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. What this means is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I'm going to take a few minutes and kind of unpack that a little bit. We see that his name in verse 32, uh, it, he, or verse 31, he's going to be called Jesus, which means God saves. Into verse 32, we see he's going to be great, but we're not talking about like great as in being the best among equals. We're talking about like LeBron James playing Little League. Like it's a different category altogether. And the New Testament bears this out that the, 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 the disciples of Jesus, his earliest followers looked at him and did not see a good teacher, but they saw God. They worshiped him as God. They, they followed him. They died calling him God. Thomas, who was often called the doubting disciple, when he saw Jesus risen, he said, my Lord and my God. Titus later on wrote that Jesus was God and Savior. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. Again, born to Mary, a real physical birth. Little interesting note, if you look back at the early heresies in the church, very rarely did people have a hard time believing Jesus was God. They had a harder time believing he was a human. For us, it's the opposite. We're like, it's like, is he really God? But at that time, it was the idea that he could possibly be human. And so Jesus is human in every way possible. He's not kind of like us. He is actually human. He's like us in every way. He had a physical body. Jesus in Matthew 1, it says he had a genealogy and a history and a family and a legacy and a reputation. He was born of a woman, according to Galatians 4. He ate, he drank, he slept, he rejoiced, he wept, he suffered and died in a physical body. He had a mind, a will, and emotions. So much so, in fact, that Hebrews said that he was like us in every way for two reasons. One, so that as a high priest who could empathize with us, he could pay for our sins. And then secondly, so he could live a sinless life. And we need both of those. We need him to live that life we couldn't. We need him to die the death that we deserve because only God can live up to God's holy standard and only a perfect man could go and pay that penalty in our place. And at the cross, those two things are exchanged that our record is exchanged for Jesus's record. And when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect and holy as he sees Christ. Now, I only have about a minute to explain the complexities of how these two work together, okay? So hang with me for a minute. Um, th the things we're trying to work through here, entire councils of Christians spent a long time trying to sort out. 
And when we think about how God could be, Jesus could be fully God and fully man, there's a mystery here. And we have to be okay with mystery. We have to lean into that mystery. And so there was a council around the, I believe the 500s called the Council of Chalcedon that basically just built a wall around this mystery. And they said there are four truths about the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And like I said, I'm gonna explain this in a minute and everyone's gonna perfectly understand, I promise, maybe. It says that Jesus is fully God and fully man without change, without confusion, without division, and without separation. Let me say that one more time. Without change, without confusion, without division, without separation. What that means, without change. Jesus, his God nature and his human nature are not mixed together. They're not turning into a third thing. It's not like how you take oil and water and eggs and make mayonnaise into a third thing. These are two distinct natures, okay? Everybody got that? Secondly, without confusion, which means he doesn't stop being God when he became a God became man does not mean that he ceased to be God. Okay, without division, he's not half God and half man. He's fully God and fully man. And then lastly, without separation, this is a real union of two natures. And probably the best way I can kind of describe this, and this even fails, is like when a man and a woman get married. They're considered one, but yet they are two people. They're two people together in a relationship. And so when we talk about this, about Jesus being fully God and fully man, it is two natures in one person, fully God and a fully man, all right? So we, we know what the, what the incarnation is, but let's go into what does the incarnation tell us. The incarnation tells us so much about who God is. The first thing we see from that is God is compassionate. We have a good and compassionate God. He saw our brokenness and he stepped into the midst of it. He saw your sin, he saw your struggles, he saw your shortcomings and he drew near because of his great compassion. And we see how Jesus modeled this on earth, right? Jesus looked at the lost sheep of Israel and he had compassion. And we saw how time and time again, Jesus' heart was drawn to the, to the least likely, to, to the outcast, to the far off, to the person who was in the outskirts. He would always invite them in to be a part of God's family. We see God's compassion so much in the problem of suffering. We all struggle with the problem of suffering. And no matter what you believe, you have to come up with an answer to why suffering exists. Because the easiest thing we do is kind of tuck our head in the, in the sand like, a, like an ostrich. They were gonna say, you know, we're just gonna ignore it. I'm just gonna just get through life as fast as possible. But if every one of us is honest, we gotta deal with this issue of suffering. And in the gospel, we see God's compassion in this. But as you consider every other worldview and every other viewpoint and every other belief, they all have to answer this question. If, if it's religion where simply I do and then therefore God blesses me, when suffering comes into our life, here's what that would mean. It would mean that you just didn't work hard enough. You just need to be better. You need to be smarter. You need to be better educated. You need to be more capable. And if you were those things, you just wouldn't suffer. Bad things wouldn't happen to you if you just did what you were supposed to do. Even karma falls into that because when we look at the idea of karma, karma falls apart when it comes to suffering. Because when we see someone who suffers unjustly, we can't just look at that person and say, you know what, you deserved it. Even the idea of removing God from the equation doesn't do anything because if this is it, then people's suffering is just part of the package. But we have a God who has wounds. We have a God who bled. We have a God whose hands and feet were pierced and a, a, a crown of thorns was pushed on his head who was stripped naked and mocked 
for our sake. In fact, the idea of suffering is actually evidence that there is a God. C.S. Lewis again says that fish don't feel wet because they were made for water. If this world was it, we wouldn't feel the tension in our hearts that something's wrong. We wouldn't look at poverty and injustice and racism and say, you know what, that's wrong. But the fact that we were created for something more tells us that there is something more out there. And Jesus stepped into that suffering and brokenness so that one day it would be no more. Whatever you're struggling with, Jesus is compassionate and near to you. Secondly, God is gracious. Look at who God chooses to carry this out. God goes to, he doesn't go to a queen. He doesn't go into a royal family. He doesn't go into somebody with a great pedigree. He goes to a woman who's a virgin, a virgin teenager, the least, the most likely, the weakest, the lowest. And what does the angel say? You are favored. You're loved. God is with you. You do not have to fear. Let me give you an idea of just how poor Joseph and Mary were. When they took Jesus to the temple and they made their sacrifice, they sacrificed a pair of turtle doves. This is the sliding scale of sacrifices in that they were the, that was the lowest possible thing that you could make as a sacrifice. It means that our Jesus got low. He humbled himself so that anyone could come to him. So that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep your sin you think might be, Jesus offers his mercy and grace to you. But lastly, the incarnation tells us this, that Jesus came to be our king. Jesus became lowly in order that he would be lifted up. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 tell us, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, to the glory of God, the Father. We see this in the Jesus is King is two ways in our text this morning. His greatness as the son of God, as the son of the most high, that he is the one who will rule over all creation, but also that he would be an earthly king, that he would reign over the house of Jacob, that he's the promised king that would come through the line of David, the Messiah who would make all things right. And because Jesus is that king, there's a call for us to follow Jesus. There's a call for us to give up our lives, to give up our comfort, to give up our reputation, to give up control and cede those things to Jesus. And we see how both Joseph and Mary did this. We don't, we don't talk a lot about Joseph in this passage, but if we look at Joseph, Joseph is facing down the situation that his, his wife may have been unfaithful and is now carrying someone else's child. And he's, and he's gonna have to go through life hearing what everybody else is saying to him, except for the angel appears to him and tells him that this is going to be the Christ. In fact, he, he had thought about divorcing her, but trusted that Jesus was with him. Mary, very similarly, knowing what other people were going to say, knowing the gox, knowing the stares, knowing the whispers, says in verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. For all of us, we can either have a tidy life or we can have a life that follows Jesus. 
We can either have a life that is comfortable or we can have a life that calls us to follow Jesus. We can either have a life where we get to control everything or we can have a life where we follow Jesus. Jesus.